Thank you, worship team and congregation. Sounded good. Kids, you're dismissed for Children's Church. And let's take our Bibles. We will turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 29 as read in the scripture reading this morning. As we come to this text, I find this to be an extremely encouraging text because it talks about faith. And the amazing thing that I find in this text is this. Faith's quality isn't the amount of faith that we have. Faith's quality is the object of our faith. We can see God work even with just a little bit of faith because God is God. And when we trust in him, it's not the amount of our faith that gives God the ability to do something. God is perfectly able without our faith to do anything he chooses. We are blessed when we have faith, to see God work. And we learn dependence on him through that growing and developing faith. A little faith will lead us to a little dependence. A lot of faith leads us to more. So our prayer should be that we will each grow in our faith. And like the father in this story, when we have those faith crises that always come, We can pray along with him, I believe, but help my unbelief. This is a great passage for increasing your faith and my faith. Before we get into it, though, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the text that we're looking into today. And I pray that our hearts will be open to receive what your Holy Spirit would share through your word. How I thank you that the power of word, your word, doesn't depend on the messenger, Lord. It's powerful in and of itself. And God, I pray that you would speak through me today. I pray that you would touch hearts and lives. May we be receptive to what your word would share. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to this text, it's right after James and John and Peter, along with Jesus, had gone to the Mount of Transfiguration. This was a tremendous experience for all of them. And for James and John and Peter, they were able to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in a very unique way. But as so often happens, when we have those mountaintop experiences, very often we're cast into conflict right after it. You don't get much time to just sort of bask in the glow and the glory Before long, you find, wow, now I'm right in the middle and in the thick of it all over again. And that's what happens for Jesus and James and John. And also, this is what happens for Peter and the rest of the disciples. They all find conflict because when we come to the 14th verse, we find that there's an argument in full broil as they come to the other disciples. And what we're going to see is this. Sometimes as we're serving the Lord, we're going to meet with failure. And failure to succeed in serving Christ not only affects us, but it affects those around us. And very often our failure can be an opportunity for the faithless to attack followers when they do indeed fail. Look at the 14th verse. When they came to the other disciples, 
They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Now, when we come to the 14th verse, we find what so often happens. The teachers of the law opposed Jesus, his ministry, and those who ministered in his name. So when a man had come up to them seeking to have his son healed from demon possession, immediately these teachers of the law seized upon an opportunity. They themselves couldn't cast the demon out, but they cast aspersion on Jesus' disciples, and what they said was probably something like this. Look, they talk a good game. They said that they could cast this demon out, but what happened? They tried, and they failed, and of course they did. That was sort of the approach that they took. And what we need to understand is this. Skeptics always stand in the wings, waiting to cast aspersions, and we need to be more dependent on the Lord to see success in our ministry so that we don't give them opportunity to do so. Here are these disciples. No doubt they were frustrated. They were discouraged. Picture a father that comes to these disciples with them being his hope that his son would be delivered from this terrible demon possession. Imagine his discouragement. Imagine how he felt as he saw them fail. Imagine how those who were on the outskirts that came just to see a miracle were feeling. They were looking and saying, well, we didn't get our miracle today. So what they're doing is there's this crowd assembled around the teachers of the law and around the nine disciples who didn't go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and all of them are engaged in this argument. And you can just kind of picture, visualize them hurling accusations back and forth. And the frustrated the disciples, the, the teachers of the law circling around kind of like sharks that smell blood in the water, and all of this is going on, and in comes Jesus, James, John, and Peter. But then we find something else. When the faithless attack the followers of Jesus, sometimes failing in their service to the Lord can shake people's faith. Look at what we find as we move on to the 15th verse. As they're engaged in this argument, something happens in verse 15, and it says this, as soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to meet him. Now, what we find initially is a very positive response to Jesus. And when we look at this, we wonder, why did the crowd turn to Jesus and find themselves filled with wonder? Well, let me rule one thing out. I don't think that after the transfiguration, Jesus had a glow about him like Moses did when he was on Mount Horeb and he appeared before God and received the Ten Commandments and came down with a fading glory. I don't think that's what was happening at all. I think what happened is this. Jesus' bearing and authority always brought about a response of amazement. When we look in the Gospel of Mark, Many times crowds would come to Jesus and they would be filled with amazement. Why? Because of who Jesus is. Because of the way he carried himself. Because of his teaching. Because Jesus walked with a humble authority that they weren't used to. 
And you know, all of the arguing that the disciples did wouldn't change the people. It was Jesus that changed the hearts of the people as they came to wonder at him and praise him and worship him. And you know, that says something to me. We love to argue with people and tell them about how great Jesus is. And we think that through the power of our arguments, perhaps somehow we can change a person, transform them through our prowess and our ability to argue. And really what we need to do is point them to Jesus. Let them see Jesus. Let them see the Jesus of the Bible. Share with them who he is and what he's about, and that's what will reach people. Jesus, by his mere presence, had a response from the people. But then, notice the text goes on. As Jesus is interacting with his disciples, he says this, what are you arguing with them about? And then we find the answer. In verse 17, we see the situation framed for us. And it says this, A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who was possessed by a spirit that robbed him of his speech. Now, the father begins to describe for us a very helpless and hopeless situation. Can you imagine this father who loves his son and who has watched his son suffer and struggle with this demon possession? Can you imagine the fear that the father felt as he would watch his son thrown into a convulsion, fall to the ground, foam at the mouth, writhe around on the ground? No doubt he had tried to address the situation in various ways, and all of them met with failure. But then this father says, I'll bring him to Jesus. So he brings this boy to Jesus to be healed because he had heard so much about how Jesus even rose people from the grave, or from the dead at least, at this point, how Jesus had cast out other demons. And so he goes with hope, only to find that Jesus wasn't there. Only his disciples. And not all of them, only nine. So he looks at the disciples and he decides, well, I've heard that they've been given power and authority to do this as well. So I'm going to ask them, will you cast out the demon from my son? And so he does. Now we don't know what transpired. We don't know whether they just looked at the boy and said, demon, come out. We don't know how they tried to address it, but what we do know is this, they did. And when they tried, they failed. Can you imagine the heart of this father? Can you imagine the disappointment, the sadness, and perhaps even disillusionment that he felt and these people attempting to do something that they failed at. And then can you imagine all of those teachers of the law? See, we told you there was nothing to this Jesus and his followers. They're powerless. They can't do anything. I imagine all of those feelings, all of those thoughts were circulating throughout the crowd. And here is Jesus facing his disciples, facing this crowd, 
facing this disappointed father. Look at the 18th verse, and you can see this hopelessness further. When it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked the disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Think of how that father felt. So sad, so disillusioned, so frustrated. But also think of the disciples for a moment. Wait a minute. Jesus told us that we could cast out demons in his name. What is with this? Why is this demon not going away? Now, the word of God doesn't give us a reason right away for why the disciples couldn't heal this man. But I think we can read between the lines and gain some insight. When the disciples tried to heal this man, perhaps they had met with success before in casting out demons. So when this man brought his son, they probably thought, well, here's another one. We'll carve another notch in our belts and Another demon will be cast out, and we're good to go. So perhaps with confidence in their own power, their own strength, they turn to this man who brings his boy, and they perhaps lay hands on him. Maybe they just pray for him, kind of firing up a quick prayer without thought. Perhaps they didn't even pray and just said a word like, be gone. But the implication that we'll see in this text is this. They tried to do what they did in the power of their own strength. And you know, I think there's a message in this for us. Sometimes we can have great success, and we can think, I got this. And so, rather than depending on the Lord and what we do, you know what we do? We depend in our own strength and in our own success. And we sort of say to ourselves, wow, This Christian thing's pretty easy. Take heed if you think you stand lest you fall. Because what we find is in those moments, very often, we find failure. Any success that comes, comes not through our own power, but through the power of God. The disciples had to learn that. And this event, I think, drove that point home because in their failure, they were shaking the faith of this father, perhaps of the crowd, perhaps even their own faith was shaken. They were in a place because of their own pride and lack of dependence on God that rattled their faith. But here's what we find. Finding deliverance comes through faith in Jesus. When we first come to Jesus' response right after the Father answers his question, he makes a comment about the faithlessness of this generation. And notice what he says in verse 19. O unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, Jesus' first words indicate the crux of the problem with the disciples, with the audience, with the Father, with all of them. They were an unbelieving generation. 
And as we've seen before, when Jesus says unbelieving generation, that carries with it the idea of a generation from the Old Testament that would reject God and subscribe to the idols and the ways of thinking of those around them. What Jesus, in essence, is doing is tying them together with the unbelieving generations of the Old Testament. So this is a strong statement that he's making concerning all of these people. What he's saying is this. You have bought in to the thought process of this generation that rejects God and rejects the Messiah. So you know what he's saying in that? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a believer, your worldview should be produced by faith, not by the thought processes of whatever generation you live in. And what we find in Christianity is this. Very often our worldview is not shaped by faith. It's shaped by those around us. It's shaped by their values, by their outlooks, by the way they think about God. We need to have a faith that is directed toward God's Word, that sees what God says and entrusts ourselves to it. That's what faith is. Faith isn't looking at something and saying, yeah, I believe that, and then doing nothing with it. Faith is looking at something and saying, yes, this is true, true enough for me to trust it in any and every situation. True enough for me to invest all that I am in this so that I can live it out. The generation that Jesus was speaking to had difficulty embracing that. The teachers of the law couldn't believe because they were so married to a system that they had built and perpetuated that they couldn't see God with them in the person of Jesus Christ. The crowd had invested in that same system of thought. and As they looked at Jesus, some of them wanted to follow him. Some of them wanted to spend time learning more about him. But they weren't ready to leave behind those things that they had been taught and fully invest in Christ. And yes, even the disciples. On numerous occasions, what have we seen? We've seen the disciples want to believe even more than the crowd, but they still hold on to their old ideas about who Messiah is rather than listening to the revelation of God as Jesus Christ shares who he is. It was an unbelieving generation. And you know, as I look at this, it made me stop and think, what would Jesus say to our generation? To Oakland Bible Church, to the Christian movement here in the United States, how would he respond to us? Would he say very much the same thing because of the way that we behave, because of the way that we sort of exclude him from our decision-making and our value system? God wants us to not be an unbelieving generation, but to operate from faith. And that's what we find as we go on in this text. Faith, even when it's very small, can still see help from God. Look at what happens with this father. Jesus tells them to bring him the boy. So verse 20, 
They brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, and he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Now, what we find in verse 20 is this. Where the people didn't believe in Jesus, the demon did. The demon knew exactly whose presence he was in, and it scared him. So in a thrust of last resort, he convulses the boy, he causes him to roll on the ground, and Jesus turns to the father and he asks, how long has he been like this? You see, what we find in Mark is, Mark is establishing that, hey, folks, this wasn't a setup. This wasn't somebody pretending to be in a convulsion. This was something that this child had suffered from, from childhood. And notice the response of the father, verse 21. From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. So this particular demon was so set on destruction that he tried to kill the boy by throwing him into these things. But then look at what the father says. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now again, we see a frustrated faith on the part of the father. When the father sees Jesus, he hopes. Perhaps this Jesus can succeed where his disciples failed, but he wasn't sure. Do you see the way he asks Jesus, if you can do anything, please have pity on us. There was that glimmer of faith and hope, but it was clouded by doubt. And you know, as I look at this father, I can relate. Haven't we all been there where we look at a promise from God and we say, God, I know your word says this, but I just don't see how this is going to work out. I just wonder if things are really going to happen the way your word says it's going to happen. It doesn't make sense. I question it. I know it says it, and in the core of me, I want this to be true. But man, I'm wavering. I'm weak right now. I'm kind of like hanging on by the fingernails, hoping that this is true. And that's where this father was, just hanging on by his fingernails and saying, man, I, I, I hope you can, but I'm just not sure. So look at Jesus' response in verse 23. Look at the words that he seizes on, if you can. Jesus got where the father was. He understood where that man was and where his struggle was. And what he wanted to say to this man and to the crowd that had assembled and to his disciples who had failed this man and his son so miserably was this, yes, I can. I can do this, and you need not doubt. He wanted everyone to understand that it's not a problem of ability. 
But then he makes this next statement. But everything is possible for him who believes. Isn't that a great statement? God isn't limited by anything. Now, that doesn't mean that if I believe real hard in something that God has not promised, that somehow by the power of my belief, I can make it come to pass. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying in this passage is this, though. When we believe in God and we entrust ourselves to him, we can see God do amazing things. When our will is in tune to God's will, we can see God do anything that we ask of him in faith. It's a principle that I think people of faith need to understand because you know what I find myself doing? Limiting God. Yeah, I believe God could do this if he wanted to, but I don't think he will. I don't have faith in the character and the nature of God sometimes as I should. I don't trust in every moment that God will take care of this. And you know how I know that? I try to take care of it myself. And I fail. And then the Holy Spirit will remind me, hey, Rob, you're trying this all by yourself, and it's God who makes the difference. And yes, even pastors can fall into that. It's so easy to entrap us. So this man is being given a lifeline of hope. And look at what he does in verse 24. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but then I'm so thankful for what follows that. After he says, I do believe, he says, help me overcome my unbelief. You know, sometimes as Christians, when we waver in our faith, we don't want to admit it to God. God knows what we're thinking. It's really ridiculous that we would try to hide that, to try and fool ourselves or other people, or especially God, that we're struggling with unbelief, that we're struggling with trusting what God says. So you know what I find in this prayer? True honesty. This father is looking and he's saying, look, I have faith that you can do this. I trust that you can but there's still that, that doubt that I'm battling with. So I believe, but help me in the areas where I don't believe. And I think all of us can honestly pray that prayer when we face, face those faith crises, those challenges to our faith where we struggle. We need to just be honest with God and say, God, I, I believe this, but I'm struggling. Help me in my unbelief. And maybe that's even for the person who's considering entering into that relationship with Christ right away. Looking and saying, yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I believe that if I trust him and repent of my sin and turn to him, 
that he'll bring forgiveness and I can have a relationship with the Father, but I still have these doubts that I'm struggling with. You can pray that prayer. You can say, God, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And God can transform us. He can change us. He can empower us to believe where we are weak. The key to seeing God intervene is humbling ourselves before him. And this is what the Father does. He humbles himself before Almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, help me and help my son. So you know what happens? When we look at this text, we find Jesus respond. When we come to verse 25, we find that final success comes through the strength of the Lord and that we can face spiritual battles through the power of God's word. Verse 25 says this, when Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. Now, this word rebuke in the original language, it's an interesting word. It means to overcome with a powerful word. Do you catch that? To overcome with a powerful word. Now, Jesus' word was powerful because when Jesus spoke, it's the very word of God. He had absolute authority over this demon. So when he says, leave, the demon had no choice. In and of ourselves, we can say things, but it's only as powerful as we are. But if we speak the word of God, and in the authority of Jesus Christ, use the word of God scripturally, then there's great power in what we say. So Jesus speaks to this unclean spirit. He rebukes it. And notice what he says. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. Powerful words, direct words, words that accomplished something. Because all it took was Jesus to utter these words and look at what happened in verse 26. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. So at the power of Jesus' word, the demon left. But then look at what happens. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. You know, initially, some of the people probably thought it was kind of like the doctor who comes out and says, well, the operation was a success, but the patient died. You know, they're probably wondering, what happened here? Maybe he was better off remaining demon-possessed if he died, but it was only an appearance. What we find is that Jesus took the boy by the hand lifted him up to his feet, and he stood up. Jesus' word effected change. And you know, today, the word of God still effects change. It brings about change because of the one who is behind it, the authority of God. God, in all his authority, is behind the word of God. We can trust it. We can count on it as being true. And we can count on it to bring change. Finally, I want us to look at this last thought. Here's a fact. 
Prayer is the key to spiritual success. Look at verse 28, and it says, After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. Now, some of your manuscripts say prayer and fasting. But here's the idea. If we're going to see anything happen spiritually, prayer is the key. If you want to see victory in your personal, private life, you need to pray. And you know, prayer is one of those disciplines that is so easy to fall by the wayside, isn't it? Isn't it easy to fall into prayerlessness and sort of go through the Christian life on automatic pilot? And maybe you've seen some things succeed, and maybe you've seen some things work for you, and that makes us even more prayerless, doesn't it? I pulled that off without praying, so I can pull this off without praying. And let me also say this. This is true for the individual, but it's also true for the church body. If we want to see our church work, we have to pray for it. We have to pray for the leaders. We have to pray for the ministries. We have to seek God in order to see his work in this place. When it comes to spiritual struggles, we certainly need to pray. When you feel under attack spiritually, you can't hope to overcome it by just the power of your will. You have to pray and seek God and draw from his resources. We need to be people of prayer. So, you know, as I looked at this text and I thought about it and I thought about all the points that I could make from it about, you know, in my preaching, God spoke to me and said, hey, what about you? How's your prayer life? And I had to come to terms with God on that. And let me say this, you should ask yourself the same thing. Would I be like one of these disciples who haphazardly and halfway went through it without prayer and failed? Or am I a person of prayer? Is prayer what drives my walk with God, my service to God, my dependence on God? You see, there's a close corollary between a dependence on ourselves and lack of prayer. If I'm not praying, then I'm saying, I got this. I'll pull it off. And God, when I get in a place where I can't do it anymore, then I'll call on you. Backwards. Wrong. Prayer should be our first response. The disciples failed because of prayerlessness. And I would say to you that that very much can characterize us as well. If we have prayerlessness, we can count on the fact that we'll fail. I wonder if Jesus would look at us and say the same thing. This only happens with prayer. You failed because you didn't pray.
May we all learn to be more dependent on Christ, more dependent on prayer. And may we all grow in our faith. This morning, as we've seen this text, we've seen a person who humbled himself before God and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Let me ask you this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, have you just gotten down to complete honesty and openness with God about where you are in your faith? Have you come to the place where you've said, I believe, but help me in my areas of unbelief? Or are you going through the Christian life just sort of on automatic pilot? That's a question that only an individual can answer for himself or herself. Or let me ask you this, perhaps you haven't come to the place to where you've put your personal faith in Jesus Christ. It's interested you. You think you believe it. But you're just not in that place where you're ready to commit. Let me encourage you to pray this prayer. I believe some things about you, God, but help me in my unbelief. Help me to find the truth of how I can know you and have a relationship with you. God will answer that prayer. Speaking of prayer, let's close. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the reminder that it is to all of us that we can be shaky in our faith. It's so easy to go along and not really think about who you are, about how we need to depend upon you. And Father, it's so easy to fall into the trap of prayerlessness. God, teach us to be those who say, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.